Around 25,000 kids age out of the foster care system in America annually. What happens to them in the years and decades that follow? Every January, 1A dedicates a week to topics suggested by you, our listeners, starting today. Priscilla Molina tweeted us. She's 62 years old and lives in Philadelphia. She wrote, I was raised in foster care from 5 to 19. Never had family, a home, parents, grandparents, or history. Do a show on adult foster children. It's a brutal existential ache. We called Priscilla to learn more. I was listening to the program one day and I was been feeling the stress of my life. Was everybody goes away for a holiday you know, um, there's just so much vacancy in my life. Like it's just a huge void and you, you can't even talk about it. You got to protect people, you know, cause it's so intense mm. that you're not even allowed to really tell people the truth. I asked Priscilla to explain what she meant when she wrote that life as a former foster youth brings a brutal existential ache. At 62, I'm exhausted. So I'm a gardener. I'm an animal rescuer. I worked in the IT field. Um, I was a runner for a long time. I've done so many things, I think, to fill in that void. And it all came to a head recently because if I'm not in a relationship, I don't really have a family. Mm-hmm. When I say existentially, it, it hurts. You know, I think of um, Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he said a lot of the people who survived through the Holocaust knew that there was love on the outside. And so I feel healthy but so dysfunctional that I'm in this crowded world. And in case of emergency, I don't call anybody. That was 1A listener Priscilla Molina. After the break, we discuss the foster care system more in depth and speak with other guests who also grew up in foster care. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into, so stay with us. Let's get into the conversation and welcome our guests. David Ambrose is the author of the memoir, A Place Called Home. He joins us from Los Angeles. David, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And with us from Phoenix is Angelique Day. She's an associate professor in the School of Social Work at the University of Washington in Seattle. She researches the foster care system. Angelique, welcome. Thank you very much. When I spoke to Priscilla, she told me, quote, there's no place I can ever go home. And David, it reminds me of the title of your book, A Place Called Home. How did you understand the meaning and importance of home when you were a child? The meaning has evolved for me, and it was very emotional just to hear your interview on the front end. Uh, I grew up and was born into homelessness in New York, and my normal, my home were the three people that I navigated the world with wherever we slept, Grand Central, the park, a shelter, a quiet corner somewhere where the police wouldn't bother us or we wouldn't annoy people. That was my home. And as I've gotten older, that definition has evolved. But my brother, sister, and my mother remain my walls and my roof. Mm -hmm. And I've added other people into that. But home has been a definition that has been a moving target for me. After 12 years of homelessness and and multiple foster placements, I've had to constantly curate and navigate what that means and when it means what. And it was so emotional to hear about the holiday comment that really was quite evocative to me. I got to college and I remember I learned that colleges closed their dorms, which was news to me. And I was in upstate New York and I became homeless again and had nowhere to go, 
even after making it all the way to college. So it was very, uh, very much a moving target and a moving definition, but what remains steady are my brother, sister, and my mom. Angelique, our, our intention in this conversation is to talk about what adulthood is like for someone who was in foster care with the understanding that everyone's experience is their own. But some background on your story, I think, would help ground the conversation as well. Why were you moved into foster care as a child? Yeah, um, I entered foster care at the age of 11. Um, my mom had a severe persistent mental health issue that really impeded her ability to parent me and my siblings well. Uh, so after a, a suicide attempt, um, you know, we entered the system so that she could be hospitalized and have time to heal. I think if you haven't interacted with the foster care system, it's probably difficult to understand what that experience is like. But what is the purpose, at least theoretically, of foster care, Angelique? A foster care was intended to be a safe uh, place to support children um, uh, with the intention of reunifying children back with their uh, birth families uh, once they complete whatever uh, treatments they need uh, to be able to parent their children. Uh, the original intent was to reunify, to be a temporary place to keep children safe while their parents do what they need to do so that they can get their children back. David, like Angelique, your mother suffers from mental illness, and you were taking it out of her care and put in foster care at the age of 12. It was a change you were happy about. Explain why. My mom had a progressive and debilitating mental health uh, array of issues. And uh, my siblings and I were subject to not just the neglect of my mom and society at large, but also her violence. And it came like an unexpected clap of thunder on a clear day. And it was, although not predictable, in the exact moment, it was predictable that it would happen. And layered upon the violence was just deprivation. So I helped place us into foster care. And I was excited and thrilled about it with the concept and notion that we were going to be finally safe and saved and loved and fed. And I remember my social worker at the time told me years later that I was the first foster youth that was ever detained by her that she saw happy about that moment. And I was happy because my mom had just recently very violently nearly killed me. Um, a horrible incident. And I thought she was going to myself, my brother, or my sister. So when I went into foster care, I thought, oh my gosh, we're safe. We're safe. And I didn't know, but I, I discovered that uh, I, <laughs> it was not that case. I learned very quickly that whatever hell I was in, I now learned that hell had a basement and I was in it. So David had a, a, an understanding or a, or a belief in what foster care represented for him, safety. Angelique, what did you understand about foster care, if anything, when you were placed? I was completely ignorant. I really didn't know anything. I still remember uh, the day I was placed in care. I got a call from my school telling me to come to the principal's office and to, you know, and to not go home. And I met a social worker in the office at school who took me, um, you know, uh, to a, um, you know, traditional uh, non-relative foster home. And so I was quite ignorant um, in terms of what foster care was. And I guess I learned about it in that moment. Well, the one listener who suggested today's topic 
Priscilla showed us a photo hanging in her home of Grand Central Station in New York City, and she found it in a thrift shop. She said it reminded her of her mother. They'd spend nights sleeping on benches at the terminal. And David, as you said, you spent time there as a kid, too. Tell us the story of the day you were begging there, and you came to an important realization. I was somewhere around four, I don't know exactly, and we were living there and other other public places, but the morning rush hour was always a very lucrative time to beg. For whatever reason, people were more generous at that time, and we learned how to do it. And we were there, and I was there by myself. My family was scattered throughout the concourse. And as the morning rush hour came off of Metro North, which is the subway line that goes north into the suburbs of Manhattan, uh, the commuters came off. And in this particular day, like Linus from Peanuts, I... I just was filthy. I had uncontrolled face sores and lice, and I hadn't showered, and I, I couldn't tell you. And I was starving, and I was begging, and up ahead of me, about four feet, in this packed concourse, where there's no space, without even looking at me, the crowd parted, so they wouldn't be near me. And they came behind me, back together. No one looked at me. And I remember, in that moment, I didn't have the language at the time, but I remember thinking that I am not of this earth, that I am invisible, that these people don't even see me, and that if my family did not make it today, no one would care. And it was, it was jarring, and it was a lesson that was reinforced often. But that was really a moment I remember so clearly that I knew that if I was going to survive, it wouldn't be these external people that would help me do it. It was me and my family. What is that, that moment? Because clearly it it still affects you today. How has it shaped you as an adult? It is, at the one hand, it affects me because I think about what that four-year-old was going to experience for the next decades. And it, it, it sits in my chest, <laughs> clearly. But on the other hand, it was something very freeing in that I realized quickly that there, there are no rules. This notion that there are um, uh, these strictures that we all have to live by. Other than the laws of physics, everything else is the laws of man and can be disregarded. And I was looking at society disregarding us. And in that fear, I found a freedom that I've used to this day to navigate systems because I know truly that those systems are all in our head. Angelique, your mom, like you, was not raised by her birth parents. How often do children of foster kids end up in the foster care system, too? I think um, many families who are um, investigated by Child Protective Services are parents who have also had foster care experience. So uh, my mother was not raised by her mother. She uh, was grew up uh, in kinship care, kinship care, raised by her grandmother, um, and um, her relationship with, with her mother was more like a sister that came in and out of her life. David, there's a story in your book I'm hoping you're willing to share, and, and it's about when you went to Disney World with your foster family at the time. Uh, you've held on to that a ticket as, as an adult, and, and I, I hope you, you're willing to share why. So I, I went into foster care, and I wasn't immediately placed in a home. I was placed in facilities, and we could talk about that. But I ultimately ended up in a uh, family home, a family setting. And it was a particularly cruel family in many ways. And uh, 
one story that I do tell you is when they took us to Disney World, it was a couple of the foster kids and their biological children. And I was beyond excited. I didn't exactly understand what Disney meant or what it would entail or, or all of that. It was, but it was a concept out there that I understood was joy and childhood and fun and family. And I wanted it. And when we got there, um, I was not allowed to go on the rides. And the mom in particular would have me stand when they went in to get in lines and hold the coats and the bags and was pointed when they got off to make sure that I understood my place and ensured that uh, I knew what I was worth to her. And I kept the ticket because I was so angry at her, but more so just the world in general, that people like this were put in charge of me, that were so casually cruel. And I said when I was there, I'm like, I'm going to come back to this place and I'm going to own it and I'm going to bring my family, whatever that looks like. And years later, I kept the ticket because it was one more artifact of the indifference of this world that I wanted to remind myself so that I would remember where I come from and what I went through to be wherever I ended up. And where I ended up was an executive of the Walt Disney Company helping lead global philanthropy for this company, doing good in the world, where I was for more than a decade. And that ticket sat on my desk, on my wall at times, and I looked at it every day, and people thought it was just this very cute old-time ticket that Disney used to give before digital. But it was a talisman for me to remind me where I come from. And just one final part of that is I actually worked with Disney to help start a program to distribute free tickets for foster children, foster families, at both Disneyland and Disney World. And all of those things were part and represented in that little piece of paper that to this day sits actually on my bookshelf now that I no longer work there. Angelique, in your research, what have you learned about who gets placed where and why? Because we heard David say he wasn't placed with a family immediately. He was first placed in, in a facility um, sort of a, a there was a, a youth home, I guess, would be a way to describe it. But what can you tell us about where kids end up getting placed? I I wish I could tell you there was a science to it, but the reality is is that placement occurs. You know, when a foster parent says yes, if there's not a foster parent available, kids will be placed in a group home. It's really about you know the most convenient choice of the system and who, whatever foster parent will agree. I don't think there's a science to it. I think that there's work to be done in terms of child welfare reform uh, to um, help us be more uh, systematic about matching uh, children and uh, foster parents uh, in ways that is a better fit rather than just most convenient. You also mentioned earlier in the program that Theoretically, at least, the foster care system was designed really to move towards unification. But tell us a lesson you learned about the law and parental rights when your mom passed away. Yeah, one thing I had no idea um, until it hit me <laughs> like a lead balloon, really, um, was uh, when I was, a, I was a, st- a student in college and graduate school at the time. And um, I did not realize that, um, you know, that termination of parental rights was different in times of death and inheritance. So um, 
one of my adult experiences was being um, hunted down by the state police in the state where I was residing and um, was told that my biological mom had passed away. Keep in mind, I've had no contact with her since I was 12 years old. And um, they had asked me to go to the hospital where her body was in morgue and to ask me to claim it. Um, and I was surprised by that and um, because of you know, experiencing termination of parental rights. And they said that that doesn't apply for death and inheritance. So it was not some, I didn't learn that policy from the system. I learned it from, you know, as an adult, um, uh, having this experience. And um, I also had the experience of running a college access and retention program at a four-year university and and, um, worked with a young person who was in the college access program that I operated who experienced inheriting her sister's body. So it it was something I didn't, I thought this was a freak of nature thing until not only did it happen to me, it also happened to one of the young people that I was supporting in a college access program. We got this tweet from Dr. Lola Rose, who says, as a grandparent of two foster children and a mother of two children who were adopted, I believe the states try too hard to keep hold onto the children for their biological parents. Parents are given too many chances and too much leeway. If parental rights were terminated for cause, then more of the foster children would be available for adoption. Angelica, I'd love to hear you respond to that as someone who researches this field. Yes, and your your um, viewer is a, a kinship person, and I think kinship uh, caregivers do have a unique lens. One is they have a personal relationship with the birth parent, um, and that relationship oftentimes is very tenuous. Um, they've had the unique experience uh, where they have, you know, tried to support birth parents over time and have seen that fail. So you know, long before a child comes into care, they've already had this experience, so they've had enough of it, right? And they just want it to be over. Um, So I would say that those who are parenting in a kinship situation do have a unique and different lens. I would say non-relative foster parents have not had that experience. Um, And I think, you know, in terms of moving the system forward, that we do need to support, you know, foster birth parent relationships to help understand and, and move towards you know, uh, co-parenting, because whether we like it or not, when parental rights are terminated, many young people who age out of the system go back to their birth families because there's no one else in this world for them to turn to, whether or not that relationship is healthy or not. So we would be doing right by these children and by these families if we were supporting them, whether termination of parental rights happens or not, because whether we like it or not, those kids are going home. And we should just mention, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, in 2021, over 100,000 children were eligible for adoption. So there are children who are available for adoption who aren't aren't being adopted. Let's go back to our voicemail box. This is James. I'm an adult who did grow up in foster care, not knowing my parents, not knowing any cousins, aunts or uncles and stuff like that. And yeah, uh, it played a big part of my life. It messed up a lot of uh, relationships. And Priscilla, our listener and former foster kid who suggested today's topic, shared more about this. The skills that you need to survive like me are very adversarial to building um, close relationships, being able to be vulnerable and be close to people because there's no, there's no unconditional place for you to go to to recharge. There's no release valve. David, on, on that vulnerability piece, and you alluded to this earlier, when your 
when you and your siblings um, were placed in foster care, your brother and sister were placed separately from you. And can you tell us why that happened? What I came to understand was, uh, and this is a generalization, but this is this will help maybe a little bit understand placement. At the time, when I went to care, there was kind of a ranking of, let's go, uh, I'll just say one through 10. And the higher you were, the more needs you might have, be it if you're disabled or had behavioral health issues or, or whatever the case may be, maybe a baby or a toddler or some combination. So the higher you are in the ranking, the home had to be certified to take in a placement of that ranking. And I was diagnosed as what what time was called gender identification disorder, or GID. And that meant that I was gay. And therefore, very few homes were certified because that was a danger. And I was placed into a delinquency facility for very uh, troubled uh, young offenders. And I was there only because I was gay. My brother and sister were together in a traditional family setting and that home, that placement, uh, was really very quickly and very substantially violent. I was uh, repeatedly assaulted. And uh, when I was being dropped off, I remember so clearly, the social worker said, I'm sorry, I will get you out of here. Be safe. And I was, I was just, you know, walking into a fire that I did not understand. But at that moment almost within days of my first assault, I decided that I would not cry again, uh, that it would get me killed in this place, in this system that I didn't quite understand yet, but that one of the laws of physics seemed to be that vulnerability would get you killed or hurt or some combination. So I turned that off, and it was almost like a light switch. And what I then thereafter had to do was keep it off because what was coming at me on a daily basis was somewhat in character different than what I experienced with my mom. But with my mom, I always understood her to be mentally ill and could forgive her in that. What I couldn't understand was the indifference of the public. What I couldn't understand was that the public would allow state-sanctioned violence. And that was a vulnerability that I had to learn to let go of further on as a father. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join us for future conversations. Download the 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get back into the conversation with more from Priscilla, who grew up in foster care. She asked us to discuss what happens when foster kids become adults. For some of us, that passes present. It affects me now. And um, I guess for professionals that there needs to be some extended services, some kind of place where people can still go to a support system the way they have it for like adoption, adopted children, the way they have it for AA, for alcoholics. I mean, I don't, I couldn't find anything, you know, when I was Googling recently, I couldn't find any services. Like what happens if you get in trouble? You know, if you had, if you didn't have family when you were younger, it gets worse when you get older. 
Well, in 2020, more than 200,000 kids entered the foster, the U.S. foster care system, and every year, more than 20,000 age out. We heard from some of you who are working to provide services for young people who are aging out of foster care. Sheila in Vermont emailed us, I started several high school mentoring programs. Teens in foster care often have enormous challenges, and often they're blamed for those challenges. Mentoring programs can help a lot, but funding gets dropped quickly, and those programs disappear at the blink of an eye. And these emailed us, I work with youth aging out of foster care in a program that ensures they have support after funding ends at 12.01 a.m. on a youth's 18th birthday. If they work or go to school, we pay for their apartment, utilities, phone, and groceries while teaching independent living skills. They're in the program until 21 when they're weaned off the financial support, but they can stay with us till 23 for continued support and emergency help. This doesn't make up for what they've experienced, but it means they aren't thrown alone into the world at 18. Angelique, what kinds of supports are there for foster youth who are aging out of the system, not just in that moment when they age out, but but as they age into their later years? Yes, as your uh, one of your other listeners articulated, there is um, support through the John H. Chafee uh, Independence Act that allows uh, young people to receive support through age 21. Uh, keep in mind that there is no federal mandate for uh, states to extend foster care uh, past the age of 18, and not all states have done so, even though there is federal money available to states that choose to do so. Um, for young people who receive support to age 23, it's a federal requirement that they have had to have accepted that service before their 21st birthday, so it's certainly not flawless. Um, and we know there's much more work to be done. So um, my uh, dissertation work focused on looking at, um, you know, college uh, retention rates of foster youth who do pursue higher education. Um, and that uh, study, which was conducted uh, observing 10 years of college-going behavior uh, for foster youth at one specific university, um, you know, shown that it takes about 13.5 semesters for foster youth to graduate in comparison to 11 semesters for first-generation low-income students. So it takes longer to go on that journey. And um, we also know statistically that for foster youth who are successful in graduating from high school, they're not graduating at age 18, they're graduating more at age 19 or 20. So if you're thinking about services ending at 21 or ending at 23, these these services are ending uh, prior to a college journey ending. So many foster youth are experiencing the phenomenon of, you know, they're making the right choices, they're trying to do uh, you know, make choices that society would want them to, but losing those services halfway through that journey. And then as a result of losing access to those services, having to make hard decisions like dropping out of school because of, um, uh, because of there's no other services or completely maxing out student debt in a way that causes harm, you know, long after, um, college graduation is over. Um, We know that college debt is soaring for um, students all across America, but college debt is is a very large concern for young people in foster care. Well, as you said, Angelique, there's federal legislation that gives states the the option to, for instance, extend the age that kids can stay in foster care from 18 to 21. But again, states do have to opt into that. Why would a state choose 
to opt in or, or not into that option? Um, I think, you know, ideological reasons could play into it. Um, certainly, um, uh, you know, there it's there is somewhat of a of a cost burden, even though there's federal reimbursement for some services. There are, um, you know, some states may not be eligible for 100% reimbursement for everything. So it comes down to cost and ideology. Let's go back to our voicemail box. This is Jennifer in Bourbon, Missouri. I would love to see addressed on the air the need for foster care parents in this country with the huge opioid epidemic that we still have going on. We don't have enough foster homes. We don't have enough families coming forward to adopt from foster care. We have thousands of children aging out of the foster care system and hitting the streets with no one to turn to. No one really talks about it. David, you're you're a foster parent. Why was that an important decision for you to make? Well, I really appreciate that comment. I will tell you that everyone in my life uh, is probably tired of hearing about it. That's all I talk about. Um, you know, I, I think people look around and uh, wonder who's coming to fix it and it being the problem and the outcomes. But I, I live in Los Angeles and I'm always struck when I drive down the freeway and see a car accident. You know, I think most people have two simultaneous reactions. One is, is gosh, I hope they're okay. And the second is, damn it, I'm in a rush. Traffic stinks. And I think that's really foster care. We are all collectively aware of the outcomes and the problems, at least in some sense, but we all don't get out of our car to do the CPR. And we have our list of reasons and many valid, but a large part of my advocacy in in my memoir has always been about what does it look like if you were to place your own child in foster care? What does that system look like? And that's what we need to invent. I did not intend to become a foster parent, and I reject, not that you're suggesting it, but I just reject a notion that is kind of out there a little bit, that foster youth should disproportionately do so. I I do that because there's some sort of implication that we should pay a bill for the experiences we had. And it should definitely be on the menu and something we should choose to do. But I often get this reaction when I'm they're like, oh, you're a foster parent. That makes complete sense. Sure. But all of us, these are all of our children. We all are the system. It's not some sort of amorphous thing out there. Every listener is part of the system. And these are our kids. I had a young man come into my life through, a, through my sister, who is a social worker. And she would bring young people to me for, I like to think of it as speed mentoring. And this young man came into my, my life in my office and at Disney, and I just fell in love. I saw all the potential and all the pain, and he reminded me of how I surprised my wonderful one foster family that I had when I was his age, similarly. And I just knew that I wanted to be more in his life than just a one-hour visit. And over time, that mentorship became much more. And he's now well into his 20s, he's married, he's, he's in grad school, and he's doing great. Um, and it was and is, remains one of the most important loves of my life. Was it hard? Sure. Fostering is hard. But it's also one of the most beautiful things you can do. I, I, I think we should treat foster parents like the heroes that they are, regardless, as a class, where we do things to acknowledge that they're on the front lines of this war on poverty that we're still in and we have not yet won, and not treat them and write them off as evil people, which is really all we think about them. 
And I think that's part of the reason more people don't do it. We need to honor them, recruit them, and do different types of support to make sure we have the best people doing this vital nation-building work. Part of what I hear you alluding to there, David, is, is the fact that parenting doesn't stop at 18. Um, there's not some, some magical cutoff when suddenly, <laughs> you know, suddenly it's like, okay, kiddo, you know, you're, you're done. And so there, there needs to be not just that financial safety net, but, but somehow an emotional safety net for young people who are aging out as well. I I laugh only because there's probably so many listeners, you know, of all different ages today and in in the future. Who's independent by 40? Mm. All of us need a community in our corner. And it may not be for uh, the same thing every day or the most vital or pressing need, but we need to call someone when we're excited. We need to call someone when we have a challenge. We need to call someone just to know that there's someone out there thinking of us. And that is not just a cosign of an apartment or a car loan or, or all the other important logistical things. But that's also one of the challenges and one of the things I take with me from foster care is I have the ability and I have created my own community. And I, I have my brother and sister, but I've also created a network of people that are my family. And they're not biologically related to me, but both as a foster kid and as a queer man, I've had to learn to curate and bring along people and sometimes edit people, but create a community that's in my corner. Angelique, you support a bill that's been introduced to Congress but not passed. It's called Fostering Success in Higher Education. Tell us about this bill and, and how you think it could make higher education more accessible for foster kids as they age out. Yeah, and I appreciate this question. It's This bill is really based on both my research but also my lived experience of, um, you know, uh, prior to 2009 when the um, College Cost Reduction Act was passed, um, all young people that applied to college could not claim independent status until age 24. Um, and as you've heard from listeners and my colleague on the call today is that for those who aren't um, connected to family, it means you couldn't complete your FAFSA form because you didn't have access to, you know, tax information for caregivers, um, you know, who were taking care of you. And if you couldn't complete your FAFSA form, you had no money to go to school, which means you didn't go. And there's a reason why our our uh, college enrollment rates are low. Uh, current data shows you that only about, you know, between three and six percent of foster youth ever successfully complete a higher education credential. It's it's amazingly low. And we know that the, the success of the average calling going student is is not just their ability to um, academically be successful, but it's because they've had um, you know, reliable, caring adults in their lives pushing them through. College is hard. College is stressful. Um, you know, the average college student has the opportunity to turn to somebody to emotionally process all of those challenges along their journey. And foster youth don't have that same opportunity. So this particular bill uh, would incentivize universities to build college support programs that specifically target um, foster youth uh, and homeless youth who don't have access to um, to people in their lives that can support them through the college journey. Um, many um, foster youth who have experienced reunification, you know, oftentimes are reunified with families who don't understand college, never went to college. So even having them, they don't really know how to support them through the process. 
Um, so uh, these types of resources are, are absolutely critical. We also know that foster youth uh, tend to, um, if they attend high school and graduate from high school, they're at lower performing high schools. So they need extra time in college to catch up, to be able to take and successfully complete um, coursework that's required for their majors. So there is a huge need to have sensitive people that understand that these young people aren't coming to school with family privilege and need that extra support that is, and someone who's trauma-informed and is not going to make them retell their story and re-traumatize them in the collegiate journey, which we have seen uh, happen. So um, this particular bill would incentivize universities to develop campus support programs that employ um, you know, foster care champions in the university setting that have training and understanding of the unique challenges that foster youth have, are trained and aware of the unique resources that do currently exist and can help navigate the university journey to help fill holes where federal resources fall short um, because it is not a perfect system. So, um, it would, it would be amazing to see this bill happen to allow not only increased access to college, but also increased retention graduation rates for foster youth so they have their best chance of securing a job in a field that they're interested in, have access to employer-paid uh, employer health insurance and other benefits that are critical to having a successful life in adulthood. Well, we will revisit this conversation in another episode of 1A. That's Angelique Day, an associate professor of social work at the University of Washington in Seattle. Also with us, David Ambrose, author of the new memoir, A Place Called Home. Angelique, David, thank you so much. Today's producer was Avery Jessa Chapnick. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.